Um, tonight we're going to be in Revelation chapter 8. Let me give you uh, kind of a brief overview, rundown, so to speak, from, for chapters 1 through 7. In Revelation 1 through 7, from the island, the prison island of Patmos, the Apostle John receives this, this glorious glimpse of the nature of Jesus. We see that so clear in chapter 1. John is told of the current state of the church, and he gets a preview of the things that will take place. John, while there on the island of Patmos, received information to share with the church about the church. And then John is taken into the future to see the church in heaven and actually to be with the church in heaven. It's pretty fascinating if you kind of review back through that of what we've already looked at. The church going from here to heaven, that transition from earth to heaven, is primarily through an event called the rapture of the church. Many have already departed. Uh, the Bible speaks of, you know, they're sleeping. Or, you know, the Bible teaches you and I, since the resurrection of Jesus Christ, those who die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. So some have already departed and joined him. But we know at the rapture of the church, when that takes place, we'll be brought up, caught up, taken to see and be with the Lord. See, God calls the church his bride. And he refers to himself as the bridegroom. He's declared in the New Testament letters that his bride would be caught up to heaven to be with him, and that bride would then escape the wrath that is to come. The wrath that is to come, his judgment, is on a Christ-rejecting world, and that was previewed in chapter 6 as we went through that. It's going to be detailed further here in chapter 8. Chapter 6, six of those seal judgments, you remember, were opened. And now here in chapter 8, the seventh seal judgment will introduce seven trumpet judgments, who will then, that towards the end, that will, they will introduce the seven bowl or, or vile judgments, if you would, that will be taking place. So with that in mind, let's once again pray, God, we have gathered in your name, and we so are refreshed to be able to sing to you, to be reminded that you are worthy of it all, all of our praise and adoration and worship, for you are good, and every good and perfect gift comes from you. Every good thing that we know and experience, Lord, is, is just a glimpse of your desire for us and your grace upon us, Lord. And so tonight, Lord, we are aware of our own sin, of our own issues, for which you have forgiven us, Lord. You, God, have taken care of all of the sin, all of the issues, everything, past, present, and future. And we praise you for that. You have removed us from this judgment that would separate us from you, God. And we thank you, God. And Lord, as we would read even more about the things to come upon this earth, while we are with you in heaven, while we take in place here, Lord, may we be stirred with compassion, with awareness be shaken in a good way, shaken to be awakened by your truth, Lord. May we be your vehicles, your vessels, your lights to shine upon this world and bring the truth and the hope of the gospel while there's time, while we have opportunity, Lord. So, Lord, may we be compelled by you, not driven by just discipline and determination alone, but may we be awakened, led by the Spirit, and speaking the truth in love and kindness, with gentleness and firmness. Lord, may we be your vessels for this time and this season. Thank you, Jesus. Prepare us even tonight. Amen. All right, we're in Revelation chapter 8. Let's just begin by reading the entire chapter. Obviously, it's not very long, um, 13 verses. begins with, When he opened the seventh seal... There was silence in heaven for about a half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints Ascended before God from the angel's hand. Verse 5. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and threw it to the earth. 
And there were noises, thunderings, lightnings, and an earthquake. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became wormwood, and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. And I looked, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth. Because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet to the three angels who are about to sound. All right, as I've said to start, it's important to know who you are, meaning in Christ. And also, it's important to know as a follower of Christ, a born again Christian, you are not present in these things we just read about. The church, his people, his bride, will not go through the wrath of the Lamb, which chapter 6 told us this is the wrath of the Lamb. And we're told in Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, I believe it is, might have been first, that, that um, he did not appoint us to wrath. And so there's several passages we can go over. We've already established that over the last few weeks. And I just mention it because the chronology of Revelation, is, it's pretty important to follow it. But, of course, you need to know where you are. Because if I read this and I believe that I'm going through this, I'm gonna, it's, it's going to affect how I engage with God, if, if you think of it relationally. And so, anyway, as we see this, realize you know, what's happening as we come, we come out of chapter 7. And there was this, this comfort and there was this speaking. And now the seventh seal of chapter 6 is being opened up. We see there in, in verse, eight, or verse 1. And it mentions that there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. Now, we've been reading a lot about the, the worship. And, you know, all of heaven had just gloriously worshipped and sang beautifully. But they will all be silent, all the creatures, all the people. Everyone will be silent in, in, in awe and reverence. It's really powerful if you think about it. Because silence, you know, we sometimes refer to that awkward silence. Like, say you're in a small group study. And a question is posed. Yeah, that. <laughs> it's just like, uh, how many of you ever listened to a guy by the name of Pastor Chuck Smith? He, he is the originator of awkward silence. Just kidding. I mean, but if you've listened to some of his teachings that are not accelerated or sped up, he, at one time, it was like a 40 or 50 second pause as he was teaching. And it's, it just, it, it seems awkward, kind of is. But, you know, there's times when pause, there's an importance to it. It helps you set what you've already received. It's helped us kind of settle. And then in this, I think it's just the, the silence of awe, you know, to, to worship God and to understand God and to see God and to be in that heavenly realm and, and be aware of all that's happening and then to some measure know what God is doing judicially, it's his justice that requires judgment. And he's going to deal with the Christ-rejecting world. You're in heaven, and this is happening, going to happen down here. And this last trumpet we see, or I mean this last seal is, is opened up, and there's silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And then we see in verse 2, I, I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. It's interesting because it says there's seven angels that stand before God. We know, uh, I believe Michael is one of them. He's referred to as an archangel. Um, we know uh, from that Gabriel is, simply because in Luke chapter 1, verse 19, um, uh, Gabriel says to 
John the Baptist, Zacharias, John the Baptist's father, he says to him when he appears to Zacharias, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God and was sent to you. So these, these messengers or these angels, these seven specifically in some form of order, we know from uh, Ephesians chapter 6, speaking of our engagement in battle, but also revealing an order within heaven. You know, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against what? Principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. There's a, it's, a, it's a realm and an environment that we're not, always, we're not able to see, quite honestly, to, in full measure. But it shows there's, there's an order. And these, there's these seven angels that have certain tasks. They're given specific jobs, if you would. They're sent out, they're sent out on missions. You know, in Daniel chapter somewhere, um, it, uh, Gabriel is sent out to speak to, to Daniel. And, and we're told that he was held up because he was engaged in spiritual battle. And he had to, I think it's actually chapter 9. It's somewhere. You guys can read that whole book. It'd be good for you. So it's important because we see this... Another historical book, the book of Enoch, it mentions like three other of these angels. And so we notice it's seven angels. The seven speaks of completeness as we've already looked at when we looked at not only the seven churches but the other times that's been used figuratively. Angels are messengers, so they have a specific task. So these angels now have have something they're going to do. Now in verse 3 it says, Then another angel, having a golden censer, came and stood at the altar He was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. The censer, which is just a cup, basically, if you would, some of them were like a little bowl on the end of a rod, and so they would they would wave the uh, the the incense or the smoke around, if you would. And so the censer held the incense, and you notice the prayers of the saints there before the throne. Back in chapter five, uh, verse eight. You know, the incense was identified uh, with the prayers of the saints. And remember, the saints were asking God, how long until your will is accomplished upon our murderers, our persecutors, the violators, you know, those who were martyred during the, the beginning portion of the tribulation period up to that chronological point of chapter 5, verse 8. And so here we have also, we're being told that these prayers were offered up as, as, as with incense. And I think what we can see from that is no prayer is unanswered. All are a sweet aroma, a fragrance before God. We see here the prayers of the saints, and they're asking, how long until your judgment is poured out? That's what type of prayer, if, it would, if you would. And those pra- prayers are actually being answered here in chapter 8. Because for some, this judgment will be poured out. It will be poured out, but for some, they'll know that it's God's judgment upon them as they're on earth, the churches in heaven, and this Christ-rejecting world is now held accountable for their rejection of Christ and the way they treated people. So we know in the tribulation period, many, many people will come to know Christ, but it will come at a great persecution and great expense, really probably more than any other period, um, more people will lose their life for their faith than at any other point in history. So moving on, we see as we continue this imagery, this experience, and I say, you know, John is taken from this island of Patmos, and he's told about the church and about the love God has for humanity, and, and, and then we we're, we're see that, that, you know, these the church age, he moves from that, and then he's taken up into heaven in the spirit, we're told in chapter 4. So he, he really has moved into the future. And I believe where he's moved into will be there in the future. Does that make sense? In other words, he is experiencing something. You and I will be there in this, this particular event in the future. And so we see in, in, in chapter 8, verse 4, the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. And his prayers like incense, and they fill this whole area where the sea of glass is and the the throne, and it's a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. You see the imagery. I think you maybe even can draw back if you've studied the Old Testament some and see how this all fits together with the model of, of the temple and everything. But what I want to draw your attention to or make an emphasis upon is that 
these prayers of the saints are a sweet-smelling aroma to God. Well, who's the saint? To, to put it rather crudely and rather simply, you're a saint or you're an ain't. You know, you really are born again and you're right in the sight of God, or you're trying to achieve it on your own effort and you're not saved. So you see what I'm saying? It, it, it's, there is no, religion tells us that the more we do, the more we earn, the better we be in the sight of the better we'll be in the sight of God. But doesn't that go against the very gospel of Jesus Christ? If I can, you know, somehow improve my standing by my performance, then that means okay, I, I, I got some work to do now that He saved me. Now, don't get me wrong. There should be evidence of your faith. If you believe something, there will be a corresponding action that confirms that belief. If you love someone, you're going to act differently than if you didn't really like them. Does that make sense? So you're, you're, it's just, it's going to, I look at it this way, you know, some say, well, you know, we have to do works because we're saved. No, you don't. You get to love God and he gives you a framework for what that love would look like. Because faith without some evidence, some expression, some action, faith without works is dead. That doesn't mean works is what produces faith. It means an expression is the result of the faith that resides within us. It's really, it's important to get this because this is the one area that Satan beats people up probably more than any other area because this area affects all other forms of temptation. So if I can live like I can improve my status with God and do more for God, then I'm more saintly. And some organizations that run under the title of a church you know, they, they, they give identification and, and, and exaltation to individuals and give them titles and call them saints and different names because they have been gifted more. And sometimes it's maybe nothing to do with that person as a person. It's the observation of individuals that then make a statement about another person. But perhaps that person is just like, I don't care what you call me right now. I'm loving God. I'm loving Jesus. And I'm living my life in a way that reflects that. So I say all that just so we know there's not these different, it's not ladder climbing, it's not like the world. If anything, if you want to see the structure of God in an organizational sense, it's inverted. The pyramid's on the bottom. In other words, we serve the Lord, and he who wants to be great in the kingdom of God will be what? A servant of all. A servant of all. He who wants to be great in God's kingdom will, learn, will be a servant of all. So the servant in our structure is on the bottom. And the president, the wealthy, the, the rich, the powerful, they're, they're the top. We strive to get to that. Well, flip that thing over because that's really God's design. He turned the world over when he taught this radical sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. When he taught about you know, living for um, God alone because of love. When he taught that you know, if, if you're compelled to walk a mile carrying an enemy's backpack, a soldier's backpack, then go two miles. They taught things that you can't do. You, you can't do that. Not physically you couldn't do it, but your attitude wouldn't allow you to do it. You see what I'm saying? And he's teaching us, hey, there's a different way to live. And it's, 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 it's conformed. It's, it's because we're compelled. It's because we're stirred. It's because we're motivated. It's because we move in accordance with the love he's given us. That love flowing forth from us. So we don't love to get more. We just love because we are so thankful and so grateful for what he's done for us. It's just, if you're really thankful, someone really has paid a debt, something really taken care of something for you or gifted you in a way that's a big, a, 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 just a huge blessing, I, I think when you really get it, you have an expression of gratitude. You have a sense of thankfulness. You have a, a, maybe even a, 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 some visual views to something before people that conveys you love because you've been loved. You appreciate what you've received. And so we have here in verse 4 the, the prayers of the saints. There are prayers. Some of our prayers. Have you ever, do you think all your prayers have been answered within like a 24-hour window? Okay, well, maybe within the first five years or 10 years? Some of you, have you been praying for maybe someone or something for more than 10 years, 15 years, 20 years? That's because God doesn't hear your prayers. 
No, you're right. No. It says here that they're still in, they're in the throne room. They're in the very presence of God. Like a sweet, and what he's conveying is it's a sweet-smelling aroma. And he is, he's not discounting any of them. It says here, as we see, he, he actually will take those, and, and we'll just read on. We've already read it, but we see in verse 5, Then the angel took the censer, which is what's holding these things, and it's, it's got this, this um, coal, if you would, fire with the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there were noises, thundering, lightning, and an earthquake. You know, we're not praying for wrath upon people. A Christian can't pray that. You can't. You can pray for thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But you don't have the wisdom, you don't have the knowledge, you don't know the very heart of a man to pray for God's wrath upon them. You can pray for his will. But do you see what I'm saying, the, the, the difference? I want his will to be accomplished in everyone's life. I, I want what he wants. It's God's desire that no man would perish, but all will come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. But he also imparts into humanity it's required of love, the ability to decide to love God or not love God, hate Him. And so um, when we pray, when we're lifting up prayers for those who are not yet Christian, or we're lifting up prayers for maybe somebody who we've seen do horrible things, we know of terrible things. You and I pray for God's justice, for His will to be accomplished. When we hear about horrible things that happen to kids, and terrible things that have been done to one another, and vicious, malicious, brutal violent things that are even happening right now in Ukraine and other places. We pray for God's will. And so those prayers realize they're not just random acts of the human mind to clear your conscience and feel like you did something good. They're literally like sent up. They're, they're here in heaven. And they're all mixed together. And God sees that, hears that. And what he's, what he's conveying is, is like, you know, those have come to the very throne of God. And so don't let your natural mind, the flesh, tell you, it doesn't matter, man. You pray or not, God's going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't matter. It does matter. It does matter. It matters in your relationship with him. Do you think communication can strengthen a relationship? I'm pretty sure that's a no-brainer. Do you believe, I believe this, that my communication with God strengthens my relationship with God? It brings nothing to him as far as unknown knowledge. He doesn't go, Dan, I, I didn't realize you had it so together. I didn't realize you were such a kind person. That's a beautiful prayer. I'm going to put it on my wall in King James Version. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't impress him in that sense. It, it draws him. It's just like when a small child speaks to a parent with that childlike faith, and she's, you know, you just, you, they ask really silly things or make really silly petitions, and the parent just loves it. They just love what they have to say. But what it does teaches us is that God is interested. He desires our prayer. If you study prayer, it's a mind-boggling thing. Prayer is not a tool by which we can move a reluctant God. It is not. But it is a means by which when we communicate with God, when we open our heart to God, we see the hand of God that's many times in movement and taking place. And other times, I don't understand this one, but it actually moves the hand of God in a different fashion. I don't get it, but the prayer, the, the, the Bible clearly supports it. Why did Jesus exhort us to pray at certain times and pray for certain things? He didn't say it so you'd learn something you could put in the paper and you know, repeat that prayer day after day. Why did he say it? Because he's teaching us what it means to have communication and reliance. And you know, there's times when prayer seems like a monologue, correct? You, you are the mono and the log. You know, you're just, you're the one talking. And it just, you're not, you're waiting. You don't hear it audibly, correct? You don't, it just seems like it doesn't even, you don't have a, a prayer that can penetrate sheetrock. It just stops right there and just skips through the room for a while. Well, the truth is, when, when we just, when we learn to just converse with God and pour it out, you have, you've got to understand how the dialogue comes many times. The dialogue is that dynamic, if you would, that the Word of God comes alive. 
And as we pray and we're just seeking the Lord, however he would reveal, however he would teach us, we want to be taught, we, are, we want to be humble, we want to grow. And then a verse will come alive and out of nowhere you think you remembered, you know, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Like, wow, so, so glad I remembered that. You didn't. You didn't. Don't give yourself too much credit. Well, what do you mean, Dan? He actually spoke to you his word. He brought it to your remembrance. You know, Jesus said of the Holy Spirit that when he comes, because when he said this, it was prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection, and he spoke of this helper, this comforter who would come, a parakletos, one who's right alongside you. What that conveyed to his disciples is, here you have me, but I'm leaving. But don't freak out, because I'm going to give you a parakletos, one who will be just like me, so to speak. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, and what did he say that the Holy Spirit would do? He would guide you into all truth. He would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, guide you into all truth. He would bring to your remembrance the things that I've told you. So you, do you realize that? I don't think most of us realize we in our prayer life, we go from monologue to dialogue and not even realize that God was speaking to us because we're sometimes thinking, oh, I remember this verse. And you might text it to somebody, and that's awesome. It really is. But stop and go, wait a minute. I can't remember where I put my car keys. How can I remember a verse that I read on the 3rd of January in my daily reading in my one-year Bible? You see what I'm saying? There's a point where you recognize, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. I believe God is actually speaking to me through his word and illuminating portions and bringing psalms to comfort and easing on my mind, and he's just doing that. Because it's an answer to prayer. It's this conversation that is a dialogue, not just a monologue. And so these prayers, they rise up and and God deals with them. And we see now, as we've read here, this verse 5, this angel that took the censer, he filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. So this process is starting. The first trumpet's about to sound. Let's turn, if you would, to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. If you consider what we just read there, there are noises, thunderings, lightning, earthquake in verse 5. And now we turn over to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 6. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, in verse 6, reads, Since it's a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you, speaking of what we've read about those, those saints who were martyred, but speaking of just in the history of the church as well, Verse 7, and to give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, some we just read about. Verse 8, in flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. There shall be, they shall, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. I believe we can see this, reading this in Second Thessalonians, and we can see how that is future in there, but we're getting a glimpse of it, can we agree, in Revelation chapter 8, which we'll move back to now, Revelation chapter 8. In Revelation chapter 8, Picking up there um, with verse 5, you know, judgment will be poured out upon the earth. We've seen it in chapter 6. We'll see it continue here in chapter 8. Now, there's a, there's a discussion point, and there's a, a couple of different positions, several, but we'll just think about a couple opinions about chapter 6 in chapter 8 and the flow, if you would, the chronology. Because in chapter 7, attention was directed to, to future to, or to heaven. Some believe that the details that we're reading about here in chapter 8, you know, there, there, it's, it's what was revealed in chapter 6 and the seal judgments. More detail is then revealed in these trumpet judgments and then more details in the form of the bowl judgments in chapter 16. So they see it just kind of each set of these judgments are just kind of the same event, so to speak, or, you know, a series of events, but each one of those gives more detail. Some believe the other thought and theory is the judgments to be sequential. Um, it's happening in sequence with heavenly cutaways within the flow of the book. And so what that means is chapter 4 and 5, what was happening in heaven. Chapter 6, the seal judgments on earth. Chapter 7, we glance back to heaven. 
chapter 8, attention is turned from heaven to the trumpet judgments on earth. And I, in reading through this and over the years, you know, kind of considering the two, I, I, I'm pretty set on the sequential view because of the details we see and kind of the orders. That makes sense. So chapter 6, there's this, these things that happen, and that's for the six seal judgments. Attention back to chapter 7 up in heaven. And then we pick up there as we started tonight in chapter 8. The seventh seal is opened, and now the bowl judgments seem to go into... Does that, I, th- I think most people that I know, they embrace this type of thing because of the flow of the letter and what we see. I, I, it's one of those things in the book of Revelation. I don't, uh, I don't major on the minors. You know what I'm saying? This book... Um, I had a guy tell me something years ago. Pastor uh, David Roper said this just in a group meeting in a, in a men's Bible study, and it, it stuck with me. Do not be definitive where God is ambiguous. In other words, don't say, well, no, it has to be this way. I, there's no variation. There's no room for play. There's no room for movement. It has to be this. But the Scripture doesn't give you that element of definitiveness. It, it's, it, there, it's open. Why would God leave things open when he could be definitive? I could suggest one thing, to teach his kids to get along to teach his kids to get along. Because there's just some things that just don't really matter in a definitive sense. Is it going to happen? Yes. When? Well, on the third day. No, it's the sixth day. Okay. Is it going to happen? Yes. What day? I don't know. What do we argue about? The day. Just hung up on that. It's like even with the rapture, there's a lot of different opinions. The primary one are either pre-tribulation rapture theory or post-tribulation. One believes the rapture takes place pre, before the tribulation. The other believes that the rapture takes place after the tribulation. And sadly, you know, people have divided instead of discussed. They've departed instead of debated. And it's okay to discuss and go, okay. I mean, if you're post-trib, you're wrong. It's not that big a deal. But to me, so it's like, no, you know, whatever. I'm just kidding. Seriously, I just look at it and go, here's the deal. If you believe post-trib and it's pre-trib, you're not getting left behind, okay? God's going to like, nope, you read it wrong. You know, if you're, well, I don't even think it's going to happen, so I don't have to throw that one out. But suppose uh, I'm, going, I'm leaning, it's going to be mid-trib, which is really a weird theory, but hard if anybody holds it. Um, you know, I, I think the body of Christ would come together. I have a friend that... Uh, he, he actually presented pan-trib. i never heard of it. And he's pretty staunch about it. Whatever pans out. That's how he looks at it. You know, he just isn't definitive. I, I can't, in my makeup, I can't get past the very nature of God who so loved the world that he gave his son. The very nature of God that describes you and I in such an intimate relationship that he chooses the verbiage, the wordage of my bride. And then he says that the tribulation is his wrath. I can't reconcile how that nature of love and that character, that expression, would then pour his wrath out on his bride when he's the groom. And he chose the terminology. You see what I'm saying? And then that's what actually really tilted me pretty strong into my, the, the pre-trip position. Of course, then I see other passages saying all that to realize, you know, there's just sometimes we just... You just got to roll with things that are kind of minor. And what we have here, okay, well, some say this is not sequential. It's all merged together in three different uh, chapters. Well, no, whatever. But I look at it and go, this, this just wholly rolls. You know, I mean, it just flows and it gets worse and worse. And we're going to go on now to verse 6. So the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So it's like this first kind of casting out and throwing out this fire, and we see that there was this thundering and earthquake and noises, it's just kind of like, okay, something's coming. You guys get in position, be ready. And we see now in verse 6 that they're prepared, verse 7, the first angel sounded. What's he sound? What's, what's What's he using to make noise? A trumpet. See, trumpet sounds are distinct and have meaning, correct? You can make a lot of noise with the trumpet and mean nothing, but Someone needs earplugs. Trumpet, it's distinct. Trumpet sounds only mean something to those who understand the tune, who have been trained by, well, this is what it means. And it's a good study on your own to just look into just how God uses trumpets, whether it's in the Old Testament 
the New Testament, different ways. He's using it to make known something. We will know what is happening because we'll be in heaven, heaven worshiping him when this trumpet sounds. And we know that actually what is going to sound and we're going to depart, the trumpet. And in the twinkling of an eye, we'll depart. There'll be a sound. Let us know. And he's going to call us home. So we see here in verse 7, the first angel sounded, hail and fire followed mingled with blood, and they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up. God has a green new deal for the inhabitants who deny and defy God with their idolatry and earth worship. Seriously. I mean, you look at what's being said here, and you consider the motivation and the finances and the philosophy and the deception like that things that take place, things that are going on, and you're going, we, we're, we think we can fix this thing? And yet God says, I got a plan. I, I got, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, a green new deal because there's been a drought, if we see it sequentially. There's been famine coming from the seal judgments. We see um, the earth is a tinderbox about to, be, about to burn and we have fire and stuff cast out. There's some grass, green grass we see from this verse, but even that will be burned. If you're a note taker, you might jot this down. Um, Joel 2.30, the prophet Joel spoke of a time where God said, I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. I believe Joel was speaking to that. A couple other passages you can make note of are um, Hosea 4.3. And Zephaniah 1.3, so that's Joel 2.30, Hosea 4.3, and Zephaniah 1.3. So those are just from what we've categorized as the minor prophets speaking about, I believe, this time. In verse 8, the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So a mountain leaves room to consider um, possibly an asteroid, a, a, a serious asteroid. There's one um, crater, I think it's either called the Meteor Asteroid Crater or the Meteorite Asteroid Crater. It's in Arizona, three quarters of a mile wide, about 500 feet deep. And we have craters here outside of town. Do you guys know that? There's actually some very close, just you know, not even to Tippinook. They're on the uh, west side. You know, a couple of, they're big craters. Um, it caused you to wonder, what made such an impact? Now, in consideration of craters, there's certain things you can look at geologically, or you can look at their formation. So I haven't studied the background of these ones outside of town. I've been out there on a dirt bike and checked them out. Um, so some craters could be caused by um, unstable ground underneath, which is kind of tricky to say it that way. It's kind of like a sinkhole, but it involved rock too. Um, it doesn't always seem to fit because it, it takes, a sinkhole takes a different shape generally. It's not perfectly round or oval like many craters are. Um, but anyway, I just think it's good to think about that. We're, I want to share a video of, of the Tunguska um, event of 1908, and it happened in Siberia. And so we'll bring that up, and I'll, I'll show you. Um, let you look at that. In June of 1908, an enormous fireball devastated hundreds of square miles in Siberia near the Tunguska River. Known as the Tunguska event, the explosion flattened millions of trees and caused seismic anomalies across Eurasia, with an estimated force of anywhere between 3 and 30 megatons of TNT, hundreds of times more powerful than the atomic bomb dropped on Hiroshima. The first scientists who traveled to the site of the Tunguska event expected to find evidence of a meteorite, but found nothing. During the past 105 years, speculation about what caused the event has varied wildly. A popular theory was that the explosion was caused by a comet, essentially a ball of muddy ice that would have evaporated on impact. Other theories involved a natural H-bomb, antimatter, and even a black hole passing through the Earth. But scientists were recently able to put the mystery to bed and prove that the Tunguska event was indeed caused by a meteorite. Researchers studied microscopic fragments of decayed vegetation dating back to the time of the event and discovered mineral combinations perfectly consistent with other meteorite impact sites, like the 50,000-year-old Meteor Crater in Arizona. If only dash cams had been prevalent back in 1908, this would have been a whole lot easier to figure out. 
but they didn't have dash cams back then. So what's interesting about that, it's a brief video and hard to catch. He, he covered quite a bit so quickly, but there's like either 70 or 80 million trees, they estimate, were just leveled. You, ever, you guys know what a microburst is, right? We have them around here on occasion up in the timber, where the wind just kind of collects together and just comes through one section and just wipes out, lays down a lot of trees really fast. And it's just a very tight area. Well, this particular event, they've concluded, was a meteor, but it come apart upon entry. And so what caused all that devastation was just the, the wind from that particular meteor coming in. And it makes you think, wow. I mean, those things, you just you kind of research some of that, and, and we can look at it and go, wow, that's just an anomaly in, in a natural world. What if it was an anomaly? What if actually God just brought it about? You know, there's a, um, the Kit Observatory on Kitten Mountain, which is actually just uh, right there in Tucson, and they calculate and track the asteroids. They're called near-Earth asteroids. And they're actually asteroids. There's like 4,000 of them that functionally could collide with, they look at orbit and different things, that could, could collide with the Earth. And so what man is now trying to do is like, okay, so how do we stop that? Because we shoot a warhead at them, blow them up, and now we don't have one big one. we got a bunch of medium to small ones coming at us. So how do we deal with that? Thinking that we can actually change some of these things. But, you know, we, we, we can do some amazing things, but not that amazing. And especially when you start considering what this is talking about. These things are coming in in such a fashion. We see, you know, the, um, the, the, something like a great mountain burning. And a third of the living creatures in the sea die. You know, result of the mountain as they call it, and I believe it, it could easily be seen as either something that God formed and just broke through our atmosphere for the purpose we've seen already, or just as we would define an asteroid, um, it poisons the water because as it impacts, it, it speaks of it hitting in the sea, or speaking of it hitting in the sea, it's thrown, uh, the fire was thrown into the sea, a third of the sea became blood, a third of the living creatures in the sea died. Um, another interesting thing is the asteroid, this ball of matter, mass, dirt, crashing into the sea will cause a tsunami-like effect on the coastline of all the Mediterranean, probably the Mediterranean, but there's no reason it couldn't be hitting in all various oceans at the same simultaneously. And of course, you know what a tsunami effect is, where you know there's a disturbance on the bottom of the ocean, usually like an earthquake or something, new, and it causes a massive wave to come forward. We had a few of them, you know, recently. So, can you imagine what this one's going to do? It's, well, we know what it's going to do. It's going to wipe out one third of the ships, and and that uh, the sea, the animals in the sea, the sea, a third of the sea will become blood. Moving to verse ten, then the third angel sounded the trumpet sound, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. And it fell on a third of the waters, and on the springs of water, the name of the star is Wormwood, a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the water because it was made bitter. Interesting word for the, this particular star that's identified there, that star fell. It's not like when we read about a messenger, because early on in um, Revelation we read about the messengers, and he spoke up as a star. Well, this is the Greek word, it's... Um, A-S-T-A-R-E, Astare, and it's where we get our uh, English word from that root of, for asteroid. So I think this is speaking pretty clearly that asteroid, this, this, there's going to be something that's going to be brought in, and notice what happens. This too impacts the earth, contaminates water supplies, making them bitter and poisonous, and men will drink it, and many will die from that, that water. Verse 12, then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars. So that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, and likewise the night. Whether it's a, a supernatural interruption, it could be, you know, for one, have you heard of the uh, circadian rhythm, and it speaks of light in a 24-hour cycle, and certain things on this planet, living beings have kind of a rhythm. And honestly, I think it's, it's a fancy way of say, saying we're... we're we're used to routine. We do, do well. How many of you like to go like 36 hours without sleep and then t sleep 12? 
No hands. Hmm, wonder why that is. We get in a habit and a pattern, and it's really how God has made us to, to function on this, this planet, of course. Well, this supernatural interruption will, will affect that, obviously, the rhythm. There, this may be an atmospheric result from other events. I lean more to it being a specific action that God takes as his judgment is poured out. And he's, that's going to happen in a very supernatural way. Now we see as we continue and finish up this chapter in verse 13, John looks and he heard an angel flying through the midst of the heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. You know what he's saying? You ain't seen nothing yet. You think it's been bad. It's been terrible to live and, and know that you've rejected Christ. Ironically, I don't think that's actually true because most people who have rejected Christ won't even repent, even though these things are taking place. Even as we've seen previously in chapter 6, even they, they want to hide and bury themselves in the rock, which basically I want to just be covered with rocks, just smash me to death. They would not repent. So even as all this is unfolding, we'd like to think, there would be a light bulb moment, but for many, they're so hardened against God that even then they will not wake up. They will not look up. That's not everybody. There's also a lot who do come to Christ. We've already read about them, the, 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 these martyrs who you know, cry out and their, their voices and their prayers rise like incense. Woe to those because of the remaining blast of the trumpet. We're going to pick up in chapter 9 on our next study but first, I want to look at some things that tie together. If we go to Luke 21, we can read something that I think, in a descriptive way, it's, it helps us see what Jesus was speaking of when we consider what we've read out of chapter 6, but even considering fresh in our memory here from chapter 8. But we read in Luke chapter 21. Actually, let me reset that. Luke 21, but that is not the passage that I'm looking for. Well, it is too. Silly me. 2125. 2125 to 28. They ask him, what's it, what's it going to be like in the end? And he describes what it'll be like in Jerusalem. And, and as God has, after the rapture of the church, he has always had his eyes upon Israel, on the Jews, Jerusalem. But during the age and the time of the Gentiles, he put his primary attention on the Gentiles, always being aware of the Jews. But now he directs his attention back to the Israel, to, to Israel. We know that from what we've seen previously with the 144,000 witnesses coming from the 12 tribes, 12,000 out of each tribe from Israel. So here we have Jesus speaking of Jerusalem, speaking of this time, I believe, we just read about in verse 25. There will be signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth, distress of nations with perplexity, the sea and the waves roaring, men's heart failing them, from, the, from fear and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to happen, look up and lift up your heads because your redemption draws near. He'll come in the rapture for the church. He'll come in the second coming with the church. We need to be under, be sure, make sure we understand that. Wrapping up, and we're going to close out with one other passage. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 23 through 26. First Thessalonians chapter 5, 23 through 26. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. 
greet one and the, the, all the brethren with the holy kiss. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word tonight and let it resonate, take root, produce in our lives a fruit, an expression that would glorify you, that would be um, beneficial to those in our lives to be able to see it. And may it be, Lord, um, a sweet-smelling savor even to them. May it be a light for those who are wandering in the darkness. May it be an encouragement who journey alongside. Oh, Lord, we just pray that we could be used by you for your purposes in this time, knowing that you, God, you're the God of peace. And may you set us apart for your purpose completely, Lord, body, soul, and spirit. May we be preserved blameless at the coming of you, Lord Jesus. We know that word blameless speaks of righteousness from you. Not, not rebelling, not resisting, not embracing or feeding the flesh. But really, Lord, by your strength, because of your presence and your gifting, we keep our eyes upon you. As your word says, fixed upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And so, God, continue to lead our steps, continue to walk us through this life. We believe you are faithful and you can accomplish this. May our hearts be soft. May our will be pliable in your hands. May we be courageous as we choose to follow you, God. And so, Lord, we just thank you. We pray, Lord, for those who endeavor in foreign lands and even in this country. Lord, those who are persecuted for for speaking as we're even considering tonight and receiving from you tonight. There's many we know who are put to death for the very act that we're a part of. And so, Lord, we pray for them. We pray for those who go forth and speak in, in places where there's persecution, in places where there, there's severe opposition. We pray for boldness. We pray for your protection upon them, God. We pray for your light to shine through them and in them and impact the people around them. We pray that they would have a great comfort from you as they would go with empathy and kindness and compassion, but speak with clarity, with confidence, with persuasion that comes from heaven for people to know the truth, God. Thank you. And Lord, we pray for those who are in need of a, a healing touch. Lift up Kim to you tonight and just ask for your healing touch upon her. We think of others, even that we know in this gathering of people that need your touch, Lord, your healing work. And so we just ask because you're good. You're the great physician. And so we ask because we love you and we know your ways. And so thank you, God. Lead us through this life, Lord. May we um, have consideration and awareness of one another. May we be an encouragement to one another, Lord. Thank you, God. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Amen.